We've been speaking quite a bit about revival in recent times. We have talked about revivals in scriptural history and sacred history. We've talked about subsequent revivals in church history. Uh, We have given examples of that. And uh, last time we were meeting together, we were considering certain features of revival. Things that happen in every true revival. And the three things that I mentioned last time were great praying, great preaching, and great praising. Those are the three things that I mentioned that are features of every true revival. There's never been a revival without prayer. There has never been a revival that did not result in greater measures of prayer ascending to God. And prayer meetings were always a feature of revival days. And increasing numbers of prayer meetings were the features of days subsequent to revival. Great praying. And of course, great preaching as well. And when I say great preaching, I don't mean that they were always great preachers. In fact, there were men involved in revival days who were not regarded by many as great pulpiteers or orators or men with particular gifts in preaching. I mentioned a man in a place called Cambuslang near Glasgow, Scotland. His name was William McCulloch. His own son testified that his father was no great preacher in terms of his ability in the pulpit. But what he did have was great preaching. Because he was a man who knew the power of God upon his ministry. And you see, that's the secret to great preaching. It is that we have the presence of the Lord with us. Your diction could be right. Your English could be perfect. If you speak English, you can have everything right. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit attending the preaching, then of what good is it? It's of no value. So great preaching was a feature of revival days. And it was testified by many that at public worship, especially on the Sabbath, the churches were thronged. There were no seats to be found. People were standing even in the churchyards, in many cases, listening to the preaching. One pastor at a certain time, uh, when revival came to his area, said, The difficulty used to be to get the people into church. The difficulty now is to get them out of it. There was great preaching. Preaching that lasted for a long time. I was reading the other day about a particular service that began at 8.30 in the morning. It finished at 8.30 at night. And people seemed not to care. A bit like in the days of Ezra. You read about this in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you care to look at verses 2 through 4, you'll find that Ezra spoke God's word. He read the law of God all day, pretty much. And the people, including the little children, stood and listened to God's word. Every single revival has been one in which the word preached has been an outstanding feature. Then I mentioned great praise. There are hymns that were born in revival days. 
Uh, people were known for singing psalms and hymns as they came and went from the house of God, not just in church, but as they were walking to church and as they were walking home from church, they would be singing the psalms and they would be singing the hymns of the faith. And why would that be so? Because in revival there is always praise rendered to God, true praise, where the Lord receives all the glory and his name receives all of the praise. Now today I want to go a bit further along the same kind of line and I want to talk about days of revival and certain other things that are marks of revival days. How would you know when a revival has come? There is a wonderful book that was written by William Sprague on the subject of revivals and I took an extract from that particular book if I can find it here. I have so many notes I'm probably liable to get lost. But let me just read this to you. Sprague testified that revival is another dimension. And he summarized some of the major aspects and manifestations of revival days as following. Three things basically he said. When revival comes, there is a revival of scriptural knowledge. In other words, biblical illiteracy disappears. Most people today in our day, I would suggest to you, even in America, don't know very much about the Bible. It used to be that the Bible was a standard textbook in schools. But of course, Madeleine Murray O'Hare and company put pay to that. And so it's now an offence to read the Bible in a public school. Children used to be brought up on the Bible. They used to learn how to read by reading the Bible, even in their homes. That no longer happens in the generality of cases. But when revival comes, there is a revival of scriptural knowledge. And Sprague says, people really come to know their Bibles. And when they pray, a wealth of scriptural passages and verses weave through their prayers. Compare this to the poverty that there is in our prayer life today. During times of revival, almost every other sentence would probably contain some scripture. The revival of scriptural knowledge would also mean, of course, its application in people's lives. A knowledge of the promises of God would be used in order that those promises be claimed. Number two, not only is there a revival of scriptural knowledge, but Sprague pointed out there is a revival of vital piety. He's talking about holy living. Pious living. And he did not mean pietism in a sense that would be obnoxious, but rather true holiness, true godliness. Godly men and women who are clearly identifiable by others, found throughout all congregations in the various towns and regions in which we live. Did you ever read in the Old Testament about Elisha passing by the woman of Shunem? You know what she said? I perceive that thou art a man of God. 
Now how did she know that he was a man of God? There was something about him that caused her to say that. There's a revival of vital piety in revival days. And then thirdly, Sprague pointed out, there is a revival of practical obedience. The people will say that revival is impractical and it's otherworldly, it's kind of heavenly. But of course it's not. Revival actually brings about an abundance of change to every avenue of society. And we'll talk about that a little bit today in the message. There are improvements in society. Blessings, side effects, which are the byproducts of the one central movement of the Spirit. And you can't begin by improving the periphery. You must begin with God. You start at the center in order to see the results spread eventually to the corners. It is then that people's lives are healed. It is then that those people who had never previously considered God find themselves seeking out a place of worship. This is revival. In revival days, let me say first of all, there are great professions. And when I say great professions, I mean great professions of faith that are genuine. Not people putting up their hand and answer to the question, are you a Christian? And saying yes. But then living no different from the rest of the world. I'm talking about people who profess faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and their lives are radically altered. True, genuine professions of faith. When revival days come, those professions of faith take place in very, very large numbers. Now the reason for that is that revival is God's own work upon saints of God first of all. That's why the prayer in Psalm 85 verse 6 is as follows, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Obviously, revival in the strictest sense is for Christians. If someone is dead, you can't revive them. Something or someone that's dead needs to be resurrected. But when you revive someone, it's someone who is comatose. Maybe they're at a very low ebb. They've lost consciousness, but they're still alive. There's a heartbeat there. There's a pulse. The blood is still flowing somewhat in their body. There's breath in their lungs. They're living even though they're in a coma. What do they need? They need to be revived. So there's a whole difference, a huge difference between someone who is dead in sin and someone who needs to be quickened or revived. In the one case, you're talking about those that are lost, they're not saved. In the other case, you're referring to those who are saved, but they're not living for God as they should. They need to be quickened, revived. They need to be brought round. That's what revival does. But then revival also spreads out to the unsaved. And there are resurrections. That's why revivals have often been described in history as awakenings. Not just revivals, but awakenings. Because a genuine awakening happens when God moves in the church among Christians. And then he begins to move among the unsaved. And unsaved people are converted in large 
Numbers. I've been reading through some of the books that I have on revival history. Some of the accounts that are given of souls being converted are absolutely thrilling. Obviously I come from Northern Ireland and there was a a revival there in 1859. And interestingly at the same time, the same year, God was moving in the United States. From 1858 with the Fulton Street prayer meeting in New York, there was a, a real move of God that took place. There was also then a move of God in 1859 in Ireland, but also over in Scotland and in Wales. God was moving in various places at that time. And there were those, of course, who wondered if this was genuine, what was taking place. And one minister who wrote uh, at that time about the revival, Reverend Samuel J. Moore, who ministered in Palomina, in answer to the question, is this the work of the Spirit of God, or look we for some other? He said he would answer people by telling them through this little pamphlet that he was going to write, a few of the things which he had seen and heard and felt. And here's what he said. The morally blind see, the lame walk, the impure are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead live, and to the poor, the physically, intellectually, and specially poor, in thousands every day in the week, the gospel is preached. The ignorant, whether young or old, are docile. They are learning to read what that they may read God's book for themselves. The boisterous and the quarrelsome have become calm and powerful. Enemies love one another. The mouths that bellowed forth cursing and blasphemy now praise and bless God's holy name. The Sabbath breaker remembers and keeps holy the Lord's day. The impure have abandoned their pollutions. The drunkard is sober, notwithstanding fiendish temptations from old acquaintances. Some publicans have abandoned their businesses. Sabbath schools, Sunday schools, prayer meetings, and houses of worship are overcrowded. Many ministers and members of the church, many parents and Sabbath school teachers are revived, greatly refreshed, more loving, earnest and diligent. Good books and tracts are in great demand. Many, very many pray who were never known to do so before. Generosity to the cause of Christ is on the increase. The victims of the apostasy are alarmed. People have been turned to the Bible as the only guide and to Jesus as the only and divine Savior. The godless multitude are awed into solemnity. The Lord Jesus is greatly glorified. And anyone on to say this? The changed lives of thousands in this town and in the neighboring towns and districts testify to the truthfulness of the representation now given as to the results of the revival. People converted by the hundreds and by the thousands. Now how does that happen? Well it happens suddenly and it happens because God has purpose to work in that way in saving many people at the same time. Now every conversion is an individual conversion to God. People don't get converted by mass. One of the great preachers of old used to say, 
The sheep enter into the sheepfold one at a time. They go through the sheep gate one at a time. Every person who's converted is converted as an individual. That's why you must have individual dealings with God. I, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were saved before I was born. But that didn't make me a Christian. That didn't make my siblings Christians. We had to come to find the Lord, or rather the Lord came to find us individually and personally. And I know as a child that I sought and found the Lord. He brought me to Himself. And I became a Christian. I realized, you see, that the salvation of my parents would not do for me. I must have personal dealings with the Lord. So every person who's saved is saved as an individual. But that can happen to many people all at the same time. So you have hundreds of people professing faith in Jesus Christ. What a thrill that would be, would it not? To see people by the hundreds broken down by the Spirit of God, weeping and crying aloud for mercy. Hundreds being converted, often by one sermon. I've mentioned to you the glorious time at the Kirk of Shots in June 1630. long time ago. But nonetheless, it was a wonderful time when a young man was asked to preach at a Monday Thanksgiving service at a communion season. Uh, he had to be persuaded long and loud by some other ministers to do this. He was only a young man, John Livingston. He was 17 years of age. He was at the time a chaplain to the Countess of Wigton. He was not yet ordained. But when he was asked to preach the Thanksgiving sermon on that Monday at the Kirk of Shots outdoors, he agreed. And he had spent the night in prayer prior to it. But as the hour of assembling approached, he began to become really afraid. And the thought of addressing such an august gathering of aged and experienced Christians, he thought, I think I'll just run away. And he tried to run away. But just as the Kirk of Shots, the church was vanishing from his view, it seemed that the Lord spoke to him and came to his mind with such force that if he didn't go back and preach, he may not ever preach again. And he was compelled to return to that place. He took for his text, as I've mentioned before, Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26. He preached with power. This is a 17-year-old fellow for an hour and a half. And as he was about to finish his sermon, there was a heavy shower of rain came on, as is often the case in Scotland. People began to take their cloaks and their mantles and cover their heads. And the preacher said, if a few drops of rain from the clouds discompose you so much, how discomposed will you be? How full of horror and despair if God should deal with you as you deserve. And thus he will deal with all the finally impenitent. God might justly rain fire and brimstone upon us as upon the cities of the plain. He went on to preach in this way. And according to the biographer Fleming, around 500 people were wrought upon by the Spirit of God were changed by His grace. 
of whom Fleming said the great majority proved lively Christians afterwards. It was an amazing time. Revival is a genuine thing. Revival is something that produces conversions by the score. Again, there's a book that was written by William Gibson, who was a minister in 1859. The book is called The Year of Grace. From that book, he mentioned hundreds have been savingly converted to the Lord. Some stricken down when the Spirit came upon them like a rushing mighty wind. Others were convinced and converted whilst he spake to their consciences by the still small voice. He said the first effect of that revival was fear came upon every soul, just like it was in the book of Acts. Then was our church filled to suffocation, and we were obliged to take to the open fields to declare the message of mercy to a hungering and thirsting population. The hitherto unoccupied pews, just like here, were ardently sought after. All were engaged. The aisles were filled with forms, that is, benches, crowded with anxious hearers. And now for me, preaching became a luxury. I had pastor's work to do. I had living men and living women before me. They came to the sanctuary on the sole errand of obtaining the bread of life. Every Sabbath was a day of sweet refreshing. On every weekday evening, they that feared the Lord spake to one another, and the Lord hearkened and heard. And there were added to the church daily such as should be saved. Of all the stricken ones, two hundred in number, that's just in his church, I do not know of one backslider. Folks, that's a work of God. That's a work of grace. That's not a Billy Graham crusade. That's not a Louis Palau crusade. Where people by the hundreds and thousands profess faith and you never hear of them again. They never darken the door of the house of God or a prayer meeting or have anything to do with the things of God. I saw this when I was in Scotland. There was a big campaign that Billy Graham had in various soccer stadiums. I saw no visible change in society afterwards. I don't know of churches that began to be crowded with converts afterwards. In revival days, there are great professions. I've read about the New England revival in the 1740s. Somewhere between 30 and 40,000 people. Think about that. Somewhere between 30 and 40,000 people were saved in just a few years. In the 1859 awakening in Ulster, where I'm from, it was reckoned that 100,000 people were converted. That was about a tenth of the population of the country. Think about that. Eternity alone, of course, will reveal the true numbers of people converted during seasons of refreshing. Jonathan Edwards Talked about the year 1739 when it entered into its second quarter. Four persons a day, or nearly 30 per week. Edward said, showed signs of genuine conversion. Can you imagine such a thing? You meet to worship every week. 
And there are four people on average every day being converted. 30 people every week. Just add that up after two or three months. How many people are saved? Edwards, of course, said, I'm far from pretending to be able to determine how many have lately been the subjects of such mercy. But if I may be allowed to declare anything that appears to be profitable in a thing of this nature, I hope that more than 300 souls were savingly brought home to Christ in this town in the space of half a year and just about the same number of males as females. I hope that by far the greater part of persons in this town above 16 years of age are such as have the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There are very few houses in the whole town into which salvation has not lately come in one or more instances. Remarkable what God did in those times. I read today, quite deliberately of course, from Acts chapter 8. Why did I read there? Because you have in that passage one of many instances of such revivals in the book of Acts. You can start out in Acts chapter 2, and it says there, about 3,000 souls were converted. You go on into chapter 4, and you see that the number of the men was about 5,000. You'll find in various other places, such as in Acts chapter 11, uh, that there was a great number that came to the Lord. And it's quite clear from what we read there, that they were a multitude Again, you read this, that's Acts chapter 11, and I'm reading the verses here to find the actual place. It talks about when they preached the word, when the Holy Ghost came, there were a multitude of people who were converted. Verse 21 is the verse I'm looking for. And the hand of the Lord was with them. That's the key. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. That was a revival. But you go back to Acts chapter 8. There's persecution of the church. The devil thinks he's going to destroy the work of God. All he does is spread seeds to various parts of that land and beyond. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, one man wrote. And so because of the persecution that arose after the death of Stephen, it says they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Acts chapter 8 verse 4. So you've got people by the multitude going out and all gossiping the gospel, all telling others about Jesus. And what happened? A man called Philip, an evangelist, verse 5 went down to the city of Samaria, that was a large metropolis, and preached Christ unto them. And notice this, And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And the result was, in verse 8, there was great joy in that city. And it tells us in verse 12, But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. There was a large number of converts. Now, there was a man there called Simon, 
And he outwardly believed. He obviously didn't believe in his heart because later on in the chapter, Peter said, thy heart is not right in the sight of God. You need to repent of your wickedness. So even in a time of revival, there will be false converts. And people often point to that and say, well, it's not a true revival if not everybody involved in it got saved. I would say if most people who were involved in it didn't get saved, it's not a revival. But if most people were converted and you've got one or two exceptions, that doesn't negate the revival. This was a move of God. Of that there is no doubt. And how did it happen? Because Philip preached the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel. People got saved. They got baptized as evidence that they were truly saved. It was a time of refreshing. We can hardly imagine in our day if people were to be saved by the multitude. If we saw one convert or two, we would think that was an amazing thing. And it would be. And it would be a wonderful thing. But to see people coming by the score, people desiring the gospel, people asking, what must I do to be saved? That would be revival. Multitudes born, truly born of God. You know, that happened in this tri-state area. I could tell you about the ministry of Edward Dorr Griffin over by Newark, New Jersey. I could tell you about revival among the Indians on the Delaware River under David Brainerd. Right there in the eastern area. I could speak to you about that which happened at Neshaminy Creek, Pennsylvania. And the ministry of the flaming tenants as they were called. William Tennant and Gilbert Tennant. Mighty men who founded the College of New Jersey. I was reading excerpts last night from the Log College, written by Alexander. A wonderful story, which records the revivals that took place under the ministries of the tenants. One of them, Gilbert Tennant, wrote to George Whitfield on one occasion to speak to him about what he had experienced during his preaching And this is what he said. This is referring to his preaching up in Boston in New England. Very dear brother, in my return home I have been preaching daily. Ordinarily three times a day, sometimes oftener. And through pure grace I have met with success much exceeding my expectations. In the town of Boston there were many hundreds if not thousands, as some have judged, under soul concern. When I left the place, many children were deeply affected about their souls and several had received consolation. Some aged persons in church communion and some open opposers were convinced. Divers of young and middle aged were converted. And of course, judging the day that they lived in, he said, and several Negroes. You probably wouldn't want to say that today, but that's what he wrote. The concern was rather more general at Charlestown. Multitudes were awakened, and several had received great consolation, especially among the young people, children, and again, we'll say a different term. In Cambridge also, in the town and in the college, 
The shaking among the dry bones was general, and several of the students have received consolation. And Tennant went on then to proceed to name more than 20 towns to which the revival had extended, and in most of which he had preached on his return home. In New Haven, says he, the concern was general both in the college and in the town. New Haven today is more to be noted for sodomites than anything else. That area of New England is a wasteland, spiritually speaking, today. But here's a man talking about what happened in his day a couple of hundred years ago. He said at Milford, the concern was general. I believe by a moderate calculation, divers thousands have been awakened. Glory to God on high. I thank you, sir, he's writing to Whitfield, that you did excite me to this journey. He encouraged him to go to that area. I have had good information that on Long Island, now we're getting closer, aren't we? On Long Island, God has blessed my poor labors on my passage to New England. The work of God spreads more and more. My brother, William Tennant, has had remarkable success this winter at Burlington. Mr. John Cross has had remarkable success at Staten Island. And many, I hear, have been awakened by the labors of Mr. Robinson in New York government. Mr. Mills has had remarkable success in Connecticut, particularly at New Haven. And I hear that Mr. Blair has had remarkable success in Pennsylvania. This area, this area, has known revival in a remarkable way in the past. Could God do that again? Could God do it again? I'm here to tell you God could do it again. We serve the same God as William Tennant and Gilbert Tennant and George Whitfield and all of the other preachers I could care to mention. When revival comes, there are great professions, great professions of faith. Let me say also there's great purity when revival comes. Great purity, even piety. Holiness of life is produced both individually in souls and collectively in society. You will know when revival has come because of the effect that it has on people. Their lives, their testimonies, their everyday experiences. You will know that revival has come because when there's revival, there's great purity of life individually in souls. There was one minister back in 1840 in a revival that he experienced in Scotland. He said one of the most prominent features of the work of revival is the conformity to Christ which it produces. That's a great statement. The conformity to Christ which it produces. It makes people like the Lord Jesus. To read again what Samuel Moore said talking about Balamina in his day, on the part of real converts, there is an intense loathing of sin. You know, today we have people making excuses for sin. We have people reinventing names for sin. We have even so-called churches redefining sin as something that is to be desired. The Church of England, the Anglican 
communion just took a decision within the last number of weeks that its bishops can be involved and ministers can be involved in blessing services for same-sex couples. They can't yet marry them, but they can do effectively what is the equivalent of it in a service in church, blessing what God and His Word has cursed. You talk about reinventing the Bible. Reinventing religion. These people have a religion of their own making. Out of their own heads. It's not from the Scripture. It's opposed to the Scripture. I don't need to turn you to all the Scriptures that deal with this. But this is where we've come to in our society today. But when God moves, it's all very different. There is a real intense loathing of sin. Here's what the minister said in Balamina. How great the change and how sudden. The person who last week, who but yesterday, was wallowing in the mire, cherishing, embracing to his very heart, sin. His idol adored. His all, drinking in iniquity as the thirsting man in the burning desert does the living, cooling draught. Today, sensitively shrinks with intense aversion from the smallest sin. Recoils from it with as great horror as he lately did from the terrors of hell. How true in the meantime, that all things have passed away and all has become new. Great conformity to Christ, holiness of life, great purity, individually in souls. This is what God does when people are truly Converted. Their lives are changed. Radically. Those who are involved in the most heinous of sins, they stop doing those things. They start to live for God. Do they become perfect? No, of course they don't. They still have the flesh to deal with. But they'll be able to say with the one who wrote that little chorus, things are different now. Something happened to me. Since I gave my life to Jesus. Things I loved before have passed away. Things I love far more have come to stay. Things are different now. Something happened to me since I gave my life to him. That's what happens when people are saved. You look at the book of Acts. You see what people did when they got saved. They turned from their sins. In Acts chapter 16 we've got three great conversions recorded. You have, first of all, in Acts chapter 16, the young girl who was taken with a spirit of divination. Actually, the first one is Lydia. Lydia was a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira. She was a worshipper of God. She did go to the prayer meeting. And it says, the Lord opened her heart. She attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And then she was baptized, and then her household. Lydia was converted. Then in verse 16, as they went to prayer, there was a certain damsel, a young girl, possessed with a spirit of divination. She was being used by her masters to bring money to them by soothsaying. They employed her as a medium 
The equivalent of somebody today reading tarot cards or, or a palm reader, a fortune teller. They were using her for that, to make money. You know what happened when she got saved? She stopped doing that. That's what happened. Her life was radically altered. Read it. You'll see that the spirit of divination came out of her. And oh, how they were angry, those that were making money from her. And then we find the third convert is a man who was a, 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 a prison warder, a jailer. The Romans always would employ as keepers of the prison really rough men. Men who were real men of the world. And that jailer undoubtedly was one of those. But he was converted. The Lord saved him. And when people are saved... Holiness of life then ensues. You can check it out in the Bible. The converts, what happened to them after they were truly converted. Have you ever read about Rahab the harlot? Isn't it interesting that the Bible refers to her in that way? Rahab the harlot. Why did, they, why did the Holy Spirit refer to her that way? Because that's what she did. That's what she did in the city of Jericho. Read about it in the book of Joshua, in the early chapters. She made her living that way. But what happened? She believed in the Lord God of Israel, and the Lord saved her. And you read about her in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Rahab. She may have been a harlot when she got saved. She stopped being a harlot. See, that's the case. She stopped being a harlot when she got saved. Fast forward to the New Testament, to John chapter 4. There's an, an example there of what I believe was a revival because there was a woman who got converted and she spoke about Christ to a bunch of other people and they got converted. Who was that woman? The woman at the well. Well, Jesus talked to her. He asked her for water. And she said, well, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for water? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Then the Lord Jesus began to converse with her and he said that if you had asked me, I would have given you living water. Not the water in the well, but living water. Speaking about salvation. And as he began to talk on to the woman, the Lord used a very clever device when he said to her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The Lord knew she didn't have a husband. But that's what he said. Go call thy husband. Bring him. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said, I know. Thou hast well said, I have no husband. Thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. So now you're living with a man. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, I think you're a prophet. And as the Lord spoke to her, that woman came under conviction of sin. She was converted the first thing that she did is very significant in John chapter 4. She went to seek out who? The men. See that in John 4 verse 28? The woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men. Why the men? Well, you can guess why she spoke to the men. She knew those men. They knew her. They knew what type of a woman she was. They were her customers. Know what she said to him? Come. See a man which told me 
all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And it says, then they went out of the city and came unto him. And what was the aftermath of that? Verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. A revival broke out because a woman got converted. Her life was changed. She got saved. The Lord forgave her for all her sins. And she began to testify of Christ to other people. And they got saved. See, when people get truly converted, there's great purity that comes into their lives. Individually, but also collectively in society. Revival changes things in the land and the nation. Oh, how this nation needs to be changed. How this country and many other countries besides. But here's where we live. So we'll talk about this country. How much this country needs to be changed. And how much of a thrill it would be to live in days like those days of heaven upon the earth. You know, it's amazing to read of some of the things that happened in revival days. There was one minister who talked about the effects of the revival that took place in his area upon the society. Let me just read this short extract. You talk about a change collectively in society. As a result of revival, long-standing debts were paid. Stolen goods were returned. Prize fighters, that's boxers, gamblers, publicans, rabbit coursers and others of the class rarely touched by ordinary means came to Christ. Magistrates, that's judges, were presented with white gloves in several places because there were no cases to hear. The cases in our courts are backed up for months because of criminality. There are so many plea bargains outside of court because they haven't got room to take on cases. So lawyers get their heads together and they come up with some way of dealing with it out of court. Here's a situation where the judges didn't even have any cases to to adjudicate on. Listen to this. Public houses, that means pubs and taverns were forsaken. Rowdiness was changed to soberness. Oaths, cursing ceased to be heard. The reading of light literature was exchanged for Bible reading. And shops were cleared of their stocks of Bibles. Prayer meetings were held in collieries, that's mines, underground. This was in Wales. In trains and in all kinds of places, all the world bore testimony to the practical evidences of the power of God. Wales is a country that was noted for coal mining. That's why so many Welsh people settled up in Lackawanna County and all of those places up there, Wilkes-Barre and so on. There's a lot of Welsh people up there because there were mines up there. They went from coal mining in Wales to mining here. In the coal mines of Wales, they used to use, before the days of automation, pit ponies. Animals that would cart the coal so that it would be taken out of the mine. Such was the change in the miners that the pit ponies could no longer understand their instructions because they'd stopped cursing. Can you imagine? 
The ponies didn't know what they were saying because they weren't using oaths and curses and blasphemy. Among the notable effects of the revival in Wales in the early part of the 19th, uh, 20th century was the dramatic decline in drunkenness. Some publicans were badly hit in their business. Some went bankrupt. A number of them got converted and surrendered their licenses. I know a lot of little towns in Scotland. There's one on the west of Scotland called Dunlop. Nothing to do with tires, but it's called Dunlop. Just a small place. Do you know in Dunlop there was a man who was a tavern owner. There were two taverns in the town, two pubs. And the one pub owner heard a man who had recently been converted in the revival singing the hymn, Christ for me, Christ for me. As a result of this man's testimony, that publican was converted. He shut down his business. He said, I'm not selling strong drink anymore. That's me done with that business. The other innkeeper, he said, great, Christ for him and his customers for me. But that second innkeeper heard a bunch of young people coming back from a meeting one day, a revival meeting. They were rejoicing in the Lord and talking about the things of God. That innkeeper came under conviction of sin. He fell on his face and sought the Lord for mercy and he shut his tavern as well. That's a, that's a truth. Dunlop was left without a pub. Two pubs, both shut down because their owners were converted. I wonder how many pubs and clubs shut down near Asbury. Just throwing that out there. All the change in society. When the Spirit of God works. I could go on and on. There's so many examples of things that are throwing accounts If we were to see such things today as believers, our hearts would be thrilled. We read last week Psalm 126 and verse 1. If you look at it again, you see that it's mentioning there, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. We were like those that were dreaming. We felt like this is not real. Folks, isn't that how we would feel if some of these things were to happen today? I know I would. I'd feel like I was dreaming. I'd feel like this this is not real. This cannot be true. When the Lord turned the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. And of course the response of God's people is, The Lord hath done great things for us. We're all we are glad. And then there's the prayer. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Oh, what an enjoyable dream a time of revival blessing would be. But I just want to finish with this. In days of revival, there's great professions. There's great purity. But there's also great passion. Great passion. What do I mean by that? Love. In people's hearts. A threefold love. Love for the Savior, first and foremost. Love for Christ above all. Secondly, love for the saints of God, where God's people love one another. They're not backbiting, not fighting, and holding grudges. They love one another. And then there's love for sinners. You know, it's a great mark of someone who's a true child of God. Someone is really saved when they have a desire to see other people saved.
That's one evidence that I've always thought was most clear in someone who said to me, I'm a Christian now, and I start to realize that person has a desire to see other people saved. Remember the man in Mark chapter 5, we haven't time to go there right now, but there was a demoniac, a man who lived in the tombs. He was a necromancer. He consulted with the dead. That's why he was there. But the Lord Jesus cast a devil out of him. In fact, a multitude of devils. You had pigs in a swimsuit that day. Because the Lord chased them all down the mountain into the lake and they were drowned. My pastor preached one time, the devil in a pigskin swimsuit. And what happened to that man? He said to Jesus, I want to go with you now, Jesus, and I want to travel around with you and the disciples. The Lord Jesus said, no, no, I want you to go home. I want you to tell. I want you to tell those at home how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had mercy on thee. And the Bible tells us that he went to Decapolis. That's a a word in the Greek that means ten cities. He went to Decapolis, to ten cities, and he declared what great things the Lord had done for him. He became an evangelist. He became an everyday preacher in his own right, even though he was a layman. See, he had a desire to see other people saved. That's a great mark of a child of God. A time of revival produces this great passion in men's hearts. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the greatest evidences that a person is really saved. That's why Paul said, If any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. That's from two Greek words. Anathema is a curse. It means let him be damned in the lowest part of hell. That's what anathema means. Maranatha means when our Lord cometh. So if any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned in the lowest part of hell when our Lord comes. That's what it means. That's strong language, isn't it? But that's what the Bible says. So the question is, do you love Christ? Do you love the Savior? How about love for the saints of God? I've often heard it said, you can tell a lot about a person by the company they desire to keep. Who is it that you most want to be around? You want to be around that cursing, swearing, blaspheming crowd, or do you want to be around the Lord's people? It's a good question. Now, we have to live in the world. Of course we do. We can't build a little uh, thing around ourselves and pretend like we're monks or nuns and shut ourselves away from the world. We have to live in the world. But the Bible says a companion of fools shall be destroyed. As opposed to those who will walk with wise men. Evil communications corrupt good manners. We have to be careful about our company, don't we? Do we love the saints of God? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, Jesus said. Because you love one another. Now we don't always agree with one another. But we love one another. A friend loveth at all times. And then finally there's this. A love for sinners. As I just was talking about. I don't have time to 
give you all the examples of this, but those who were converts, for example, in the Ulster Revival, it was testified of them by this Samuel Moore of Balamina, the converts feel and manifest intense love for each other. They cannot be happy out of each other's company. But then he said this, I have frequently observed that immediately on securing as they feel safety in the Saviour for themselves, and in their deep and glowing gratitude have ascribed to Him all the glory of their deliverance, they begin with overflowing compassion and intense urgency to plead with Jesus for poor sinners that they too may come and enjoy salvation and glorify Christ. The preacher said, More than once I've been necessitated to cause young persons to be carried out of public meetings to prevent utter confusion from silent prayer on their knees in the pews. They would rise and standing on the seats, the tears profusely flowing from their eyes, with all the anxiety of a life and death struggle, they would call upon sinners to come to Jesus and would call upon God's Holy Spirit to bring them to Jesus. This compassion for sinners or for the glory of Christ in their salvation cannot be controlled. It was once said of Wesley that he was a man who was out of breath running after the souls of men. He was out of breath running after the souls of men. What do we think? How do we feel in light of what the Bible says about those who leave this world without Christ? Are we concerned about it? Do we pray for the lost? Do we take the opportunities that the Lord brings our way to speak to the lost? No, it's not easy. Of course it's not. But the Lord will help us if we're willing to be used. May the Lord send revival, even in our day.